Massive text. Uh, such a good text this morning as we, I don't know about you guys, I'm super excited to be back in Acts. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Reinhardt or Rankies or Ray. I'm the pastor at Red Door Church and it's just an absolute privilege to be bringing God's word this day. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but Africa has a rich history in Christianity. A lot of the times we, we think or it's been imposed that Christianity is imported from the West. But even this morning in this morning's text, we see the Ethiopian eunuch being converted and taking the message back to Ethiopia. And so from there we see, man, all sorts of things God probably used from that. And we just don't have time to get into that this morning, but Africa has a rich history. And I'm excited for us to kind of reclaim some of that history that we have in Christianity. I'm going to pray for us and for our hearts that as we hear the word of God, our hearts would be softened. Let's pray. Father God, every time we open your word, we behold your glory. We read the gospel. And so I pray this morning that even as we see this right now, that we would submit to your word. I'm even praying for my own heart as I'm sharing the word that I would submit to it as well. Please don't allow us to simply read and see it and leave here unchanged. Please, Father, in your mercy, grant us the opportunity to soften our hearts and to have eyes that see and ears that hear. We want this and we need this, not just for our own benefit, but ultimately for your glory, we pray. Amen. The Zondu Commission. <laughs> The Zondu Commission into state capture, can you guys believe it, has been going on for three years. It's costing the South African taxpayer nearly a billion rand already. And it might cost us even more. And the reason for this is because of the extensive reach that is happening with the so-called state capture. Every time something is uncovered, we realize that it leads to something else and that needs to be investigated. And it makes sense. And this is why the word captured is used. When something is captured, it refers to the totality of that entity, to being completely controlled by something else. And obviously, this can be very dangerous, especially in this instance, where the power of an entity or an entire state is controlled not by the democratic people, but by the highest bidder. However, when we talk about something being captured, it can also be something very positive. Like when our hearts or minds are captured by a grand vision. And ultimately, as we look through history, we see as people have been captured by something and it's driven them to achieve great things. When it comes to Christianity, however, it's not just a good thing for our hearts to be captured by Christ, but family, it's an absolute necessity. If we are not captured by Christ, then inevitably we will follow or seek something else. And so this morning we want to ask the question, we want to be people that achieve great things for God. We want to be people that are totally captured by Christ. And so the text this morning will show us, and we've got to wrestle with the question, what does this look like? How can I be sure that I have a heart that is captured by Christ? How can I be sure that I have a heart that I don't just say that I believe the good news of Jesus, but it's something that controls the entirety of my life? 
And so to bring us up to speed of where we are in the book of Acts, we need one of those flashback sequences that they have in the series previously in the book of Acts. Well, previously in the book of Acts, uh, we saw that as Jesus was risen from the dead, he appeared to his disciples and he appeared to the apostles and he gave them this amazing promise that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we saw that happening. We saw that at Pentecost, they received the power of the Holy Spirit and we saw them miraculously testifying to the good news of Jesus and this set off a chain reaction. The church, the New Testament church, grew exponentially in those first couple of weeks. Many people came to faith. Many people accepted the good news of Jesus. And all of this was happening in the political melting pot of Jerusalem. But there was a bit of a problem. As Christianity was growing, it was pushing against the institutional religion of Judaism. And what we saw is friction was starting to happen time and time again we saw the apostles clashing with the religious leaders. And all of this led to the boiling point, to the breaking point, when Stephen, one of the disciples, was arrested. As Stephen was arrested, he gave this powerful testimony about who and what Jesus is, what he came to do, and how they, the religious leaders, ultimately killed Jesus. This was the match that lit the flame. They were so infuriated that they grabbed Stephen. They dragged him outside of the city and they stoned him. And Stephen became the first martyr of the New Testament church. And on that day, as we come to verse 1, we see that this ignited a great persecution that started against the church of God or the church of Christ. And even in verse 1, we see that there was this young man seeing the execution happening in Saul, and he approved of everything that was being done. The result of this persecution that was starting to happen in Jerusalem is that a lot of Christians fled. And so they fled to the surrounding areas. The immediate area around them was Judea, but outside of that was non-Jewish territory called Samaria. And a lot of these Christians fled there as well. And what they took with them was the gospel DNA, was the message of the gospel. And so as they went to the surrounding areas, they didn't keep quiet. They started to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And so even though this persecution must have been dreadful, families being separated, a lot of pain being caused, we see that God was using this bad thing, that he was using the persecution to ultimately spread the message of the gospel beyond the borders of Jerusalem. And we read that wherever these people were fleeing to, they were preaching as they went. Now we need to pause here and realize what a momentous occasion is actually happening in the first couple of verses here. We, we, we read quickly over those verses that the, that the message of the gospel spread beyond Jerusalem and beyond the Jewish territory to Samaria. But friends, this is a massive moment and the fulfillment of promises made throughout the Bible. It is an immediate fulfillment of what Jesus said was going to happen, that they were going to be witnesses to the other areas and that he's empowering for them. But ultimately, this is a fulfillment of the covenant promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12 when God said to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. They had no idea how or when this was going to be happening, but at long last, we see this in action. We see that the nations are being blessed 
through the good news of the gospel. At long last, the message isn't being contained only in Israel, only in Judea, only in Jerusalem, but it's going beyond the borders. For the first time in the history of Israel, people who are non-Jews, who are called Gentiles, are now able to hear the good news and they are able to be called the people of God. This is a massive moment in history. This is a massive moment in the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament was building up to. And it is precisely because of this massive shift that is happening with the first converts outside of Jerusalem that we see a very unique conversion story happening here this morning. We see three unique conversion stories happening and the outpouring of the Spirit because what we're seeing in the writer Luke, that's the guy that's writing Acts, is very purposeful with how he's creating these stories because he wants us to realize what is happening. At first, there was the outpouring at Pentecost so that people can know the new covenant is here. And this morning, we see people receiving the Spirit in a unique way so that we can realize it's now not just Jews that are receiving the Spirit of God. It's also non-Jews and Samaritans happening it. And there's going to be one more event after this in the rest of Acts. But the uniqueness of this conversion is when People believed the good news of Jesus. They were baptized, but only later when the apostles came and laid hands on them did they receive the Holy Spirit. Now this can create some confusion. The rest of the New Testament, we see actually the pattern of what happens. is Normally, as we hear the good news and as we believe that good news and our hearts accept Christ, we receive the Spirit instantaneously and we are regenerated in that moment. Whereas here we see that there's a gap between the two. We see that people believed and they only later received the Spirit. This is to show something else is happening. Something big is happening in this text. But the emphasis this morning and the emphasis that Luke wants to bring to us is not necessarily in the uniqueness of the conversion, but more on who experiences true conversion versus not. We see in this morning's passage that Luke arranges stories and people coming to faith in a unique way to ask the question and put the question not only to his readers back then, but also to us today, are you a true believer or not? Do you have faith that is actually able to save you or do you only merely know about saving faith? And specifically this morning, we're going to chat about the conversion of Simon the magician and the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And so we don't have too much time to dive further into the details of why did they only receive the Spirit once the apostles laid hands on them. Um, and I'm happy to discuss that with, if you guys have questions about that furthermore afterwards, we can dive into that. But the big point is Luke is just showing that something big is happening here. And there's a shift in the way that we should think about who can be called sons and daughters of God. But let's start with the conversion of Simon the magician. We read in verses 9 to 11 that Simon was a magician or a sorcerer. And he was a pretty good one at that. The text specifically says that people were amazed by him. It says that he himself said that he was great. And that's one way to get people to think you're great. You just keep telling them you are great. 
It says, the text says, they all paid attention to him, saying that this man is the power of God called great. So he's a pretty big deal. Used to the limelight. No shortage of self-confidence. Doing, no doubt, miraculous things by whatever power. And then we see, enter Philip. Philip, one of the disciples, comes into the city uh, preaching the good news of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And not only this, but Philip was also performing miracles and casting out demons and many people were baptized and many people believed in God. And it's very interesting to note the emotion that was being experienced in the city. And it says it in verse 8. I don't know if you guys saw this. It says that there was much joy in that city as people came to faith. It's going to be important. And now the spotlight focuses on Simon. Read with me. It's going to be on the screen, verses 13 to 21. As a lot of people came to faith, it says that even Stephen, uh, what's his name? Simon. <laughs> even Simon himself believed that after being baptized, he continued with Philip. He was going along with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on might receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And so a couple of things to note about Simon's conversion. We, we see that it does seem like he really did believe that Jesus was the Christ, that he really does believe the good news about what Jesus came and did. He's even obedient to that by being baptized with the rest. However, it seems like the thing that amazes Simon, the thing that captures Simon's attention is not the grace of God, but rather the power of God. Or maybe what he can do through God's power. Remember that this is a guy used to doing tricks for profit. And so ultimately what he wanted is to use Christianity to make himself great. And we see this because his heart gets exposed when the apostles come. They lay hands on people, they receive the Spirit, and we don't read that Simon necessarily received the Spirit, but he was really keen in getting that ability, that party trick, to lay his hands on people so that they, on whomever he so pleases, so that those who would pay him would receive the Spirit. It's a bold move, Simon, but it's a stupid move. You see, friends, you... We can say that we believe that Jesus is the Christ. We can even think ourselves that we really do believe that he is the Christ. But the question is always, are our hearts captured by God? Was Christianity simply the popular move to make at the time? It might sound harsh at this stage, but um, 
Peter's judgment is really harsh in verse 21. He tells him, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Now let's compare that to the next story, the next conversion story that Luke tells us, the conversion of an Ethiopian eunuch. From that city, Philip was directed by an angel of the Lord to go to a desert place, and there he finds a Ethiopian eunuch. A eunuch refers to either a title given to an individual who's doing important work or a man that's been emasculated precisely because he's doing very important work for the royal family. And we see it's exactly this. We see that he is a court official of the queen of the Ethiopians, Africa represent. And uh, he was in charge of all her treasure. So this guy has an important job. Like Simon, he is also a man of great importance. Yet the tone of the story is a little bit different when we're introduced to the Ethiopian. For one, we don't even know his name. He's simply referred to as the Ethiopian eunuch. And we see that the reason for his journey is that he had come from Jerusalem or he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So even though he wasn't a Jew, we see that this guy, this guy was searching after God, that he was a God-fearing man. But because he wasn't a Jew, what would have happened when he got to Jerusalem and he went to the temple to worship, he would have had to wait outside. Because he was a Gentile, he was not allowed in the temple courts, in the insider uh, uh, place of the temple. So what he would have done is he would have given or paid a priest and given the offerings to a priest and a priest would have gone inside to make an offering on his behalf. And so the Holy Spirit tells Philip as he sees him there riding in his chariot, go and chat with him or go closer to him. And as Philip gets closer, we see that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading out loud. That was the practice that time. And he recognizes that he's reading out of Isaiah this passage. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? Now this text we know on this side refers to Jesus and the work that Jesus came and did for us on the cross. But Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? <laughs> and he's like, how can I understand if no one explains to me what the text is about? What an opportunity to share. And Philip opens his mouth. And Philip explains the scriptures. He doesn't go to an outside source. He goes to the scriptures. He explains the gospel. He explains how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was promised in the Old Testament. And we see that the Ethiopian had no doubt in believing this, had no doubt in accepting this message. Why? Because when they came to water, he's like, what's holding me back from getting baptized? The answer is nothing because his heart has already accepted the message. And so they go down to the water, Philip baptizes him, and when they come out of the water, Philip is taken away to the spirit, by the Spirit to another place. What a way to travel. Always wanted Philip's travel, but... Uh, <laughs> We don't have that. And we read in verse 39, and the eunuch saw him no more, but look at his emotion, the reaction to believing the gospel. And he went on his way 
rejoicing. What a story. Let's quickly compare these two contrasting conversion stories. We see that Simon is an important man. He himself thinks he is great. He wants people to think he is great. He's impressed by the miracles of God and he wants the power of God, the Holy Spirit for his own gain and he gets called out as someone whose heart is captured by something else rather than Christ. The Ethiopian, who is nameless, is also an important man, but we see that he is a man searching after God. He reads and hears about the text that explains that Jesus is the lamb being led to the slaughter. In humiliation, he finds justice. What a sorry figure Jesus looks like at this stage. And yet, this is what impresses the Ethiopian. Jesus' humiliation. Why? Not the signs and the wonders, albeit great. Because it's him understanding, because he just came from there, that he isn't worthy to enter into the, king, into the temple of God. He knows very well that he's not worthy to go into the presence of God. And here he hears the story about the Lamb of God who is sacrificed so that he can now be worthy to enter into the presence of God. And he is captured by that thought. He accepts and believes this good news. But see the heart reaction. He continues on his way rejoicing. Not because of what Christ can do for him, but because of who he now is in Christ. Simon's heart, although he tried to believe and act like a Christian, was ultimately captured by the world, the world that seeks to glorify and enrich itself. Simon's conversion was then not a true conversion. Peter says, you have no lot in this. Whereas the Ethiopian, whose name we don't know, is now known by the Most High God. The Ethiopian's name is now engraved in the palm of God. These are great stories. And they're not just incidental to the greater narrative. Luke is writing because he wants his audience and us today to pay attention and not to miss it. If you're sitting here today and you call yourself a believer or a Christian, the question should be knocking you in your mind, as I'm sure it's been knocking in my mind the whole week as I've been wrestling with this text. Am I a true believer? Do I have salvific faith? That is faith that is able to save me. Do I have faith like the Ethiopian eunuch? Or am I like Simon who talks the talk but his heart isn't really in it? Well, that's just it, isn't it? It's not a question of how hard or how well you believe, because that's often what we think it is. But rather, is your heart captured by the thought and beauty of of Christ. And so we have some pointers in the text to help us. First, it's, it's remarkable to notice the humility with which the Ethiopian came into the story, with which he was presented to us. And so family, that's the first step for anyone. For anyone to receive the gospel, to continually be plugged into Christ, we need to recognize the humility that we are not the main character in the story. That ultimately this isn't about us, but that we have someone and something greater to live for. 
there are definitely some people, and, and I've experienced this, who, who recognize kind of the, the logical sense of Christianity, but they're just not ready to accept Christ because they're not ready to give up that position of power. They're just at a stage where they're like, I want to I be in the driving seat. And it's difficult for people like that, honestly, to receive the gospel. And this leads us into the second point, what's necessary and what should be there as we want to have true faith. The question is, what impresses you about the story of Jesus? Is it the fact that you have your bus ticket to heaven? You don't have to worry, you've got your fire insurance. Is it the fact that the lifestyle of Christianity makes sense to you? Man, community is good, church is good, I like the songs, that's why I want to be a Christian. I want to be a good person. Is it because you see that in Christianity you have healthy relationships and a healthy marriage and maybe a healthy relationship with your kids and you're like, man, that, it makes sense to be a Christian because of that. Is it the fact that you feel special because Jesus just came and died for you and now you find your worth in that? Now don't get me wrong, family. All of that is, I think it's all of the above. I think that should be part of all of those things. I think those are the good things that should be part of Christianity, that should excite us about Christianity. But the fact that should, the thing that should excite us the most is the fact that you know you are undeserving of grace. We are sinners far removed from God. And that's what makes the gospel so attractive. It's because we know that that brings us back into a relationship with God and something that we don't deserve. We need to be, Christianity has some perks. Let's call it that. It definitely has some perks, but ultimately our hearts need to be captured by the beauty of Christ. Miracles, signs, and wonders are great gifts from God. They, he gives it for the church. He gives it as a kickstart to the church. He gives it to edify the church. However, it's not what the church is built on. Nowhere in the Bible do we see that a miracle was ever able to sustain a person's faith. The nation of Israel was constantly in God's presence, constantly seeing miracles, and yet their hearts drifted away from him. The disciples constantly saw miracles that Jesus was doing and yet they doubted. And so if we want to build it on those signs, if we want to build our faith in only what we can see and what he can do for us, then we're missing the plot, we're missing the point. Simon saw firsthand who God is, yet his heart wasn't captured. And that's why, family, when miracles and signs happen, we should be wowed, we should be thankful. We should share those stories. But that shouldn't be the stories that excite us the most. As someone comes and testifies, the thing that should excite us, wow, God came through in a miraculous way. That's great. But do you believe the gospel? Once we hear that story, we should clap and rejoice. We're like someone was brought to life that was everlasting dead. That's the biggest miracle. It should be built on the good news of Jesus Christ. Similarly, as we go out and we proclaim Jesus to the world around us, the thing that we want to hold onto and the hold that we want to hold up to the people around us is not what Jesus can do for them, but how or how he can change their lives, even though it is true. But the main thing that we want to share with the people around them is the grace that he has for undeserving sinners like us.
Jared Wilson is a well-known pastor in the U.S., and he says that what you save them with is what you save them to. If we save them with the show or the performance of Christianity, that's what they're going to want and save them to. If we hold out grace and that's the thing that captures a person's heart, that's what you save them to. There's nothing wrong with having the best equipment and the best church venue and the best band. We have the best band. But there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with those things. It's amazing instruments in God's hand. And he uses it in amazing ways. However, it's not our performance which should impress people, but rather it should be the love they experience when they enjoy a coffee with us. It should be the acceptance they experience because we are accepted without any merits. The comfort of knowing that our identity is not in ourselves or in what we do, but in Christ, in what Christ has done. There should be a definite response from our hearts as we experience this type of relationship when our hearts are captured by Christ. And we, we, we said it and we repeated it, but you, did you notice the emotion in the passage? It's not amazement. <laughs> Now we see the city experience this, but especially the Ethiopian experience this, and this is joy. This is the inevitable reaction to a heart knowing what we should be getting, but we don't, and what is given without merit, forgiveness of sins, acceptance of God, unconditional love for Jesus died the death that we should have he was the lamb led to the slaughter family is your walk characterized your walk with Christ characterized by joy I'm not saying that we never have any struggles I'm not saying that you even experience depression I'm not even saying that you never maybe you're at odds with God at sometimes as well and things just aren't right there are many times in our relationship with Jesus where we just feel down. But what I am saying is that the overriding principle and emotion should be joy. Because every time things aren't right, everything when we do mess up, when we actually do drift from God, every time we're at a bad space with God, what should happen is we should be driven back to the message of the cross. And once you get back to the cross and you realize I messed up again, I should have done something else, the thing that you're going to experience at the foot of the cross is just acceptance and grace. It's just going to be forgiveness. You're going to expect God saying, yeah, you should have. Well, you're first going to have to do this before I accept you. And yet that's not what we receive. And when once again for the hundredth time you've messed up and you get back to God and you just see the love that he has for him, that he has for you, the reaction then should be joy. I'm accepted. We, we do struggle to do this often and, and quickly, but I believe this is what maturity in Jesus means. It's not about how much we actually know about the Bible how much we, those things are good, but how good our theology is, but rather it's the ability about when we mess up, not to crucify ourselves, but rather run to the cross and to believe the message of the gospel and allow that truth to change us so that we live holy, sanctified lives after that. Maturity is getting to that space quicker and sooner. 
A lot of us, we've got the prodigal son and prodigal daughter syndrome where we mess up and we run away from God. We run away, run away. We realize we're wrong and we come back. <laughs> and that's good. Always need to come back. Maturity is just making that loop smaller. Constantly staying in that space where you hear the gospel proclaimed and where you believe the gospel and when you read about the gospel yourself. And this happens as we live in close proximity with Jesus through his Holy Spirit. Family, this is the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will remind you of this. The Holy Spirit will point you back to the cross. What we need to do is respond to his voice to learn to recognize his voice sooner, urging us to be captured by the magnificence of Christ. Because, family, if this is not the case, if we are not living with joy in our walk with God, it means that our hearts are captured by something else. It means that we want to live under merit because I want to matter. What are the symptoms of wanting to live through merit? Well, it's guilt and fear and shame. If, if these are the emotions characterizing your walk with God, it might be the light on your dashboard saying, well, there's a problem. You need to go in for a service. <laughs> you need to go do business about what you believe about Christ. It might either mean that you've drifted from the faith, drifted from living in close proximity with Jesus, or it might mean that you've actually never truly believed in the first place. However, we're almost there. There is good news. We even see in Peter's rebuke, he tells Simon, not you're a lost cause, he tells him, repent and believe. Repent and pray for forgiveness. I mean, this is it. If you're sitting here this morning and you feel your heart is cold, you've not really tasted or experienced this joy there's just constant guilt in your life there's a constant shame of knowing that you should be doing better that you're not where you're supposed to be how's your walk with christ going well it's not that great well here's the invitation and it might be for the first or the hundredth time but don't miss the invitation this morning there is forgiveness in christ if you want to crucify yourselves, you're proclaiming that Christ's crucifixion isn't enough. Family, see the beauty of Christ. He wants us, but more than that, he wants our hearts. The difference between a true believer and one who simply believes in Jesus is not in outward appearances, maybe not even in sanctification and holiness how well or how good your life looks like. The difference is a heart set on God's grace and a heart enjoying that grace every single day. Amen. Father, how beautiful, how magnificent, how astoundingly, overwhelmingly good is the message of the cross coming to a point where we realize that we're nowhere near good enough, that we're not even allowed inside the temple walls, that we can't get into your presence. And yet, Jesus, what you did was you broke down those walls, you tore the curtain, you paid the price, you gave your blood, so that as we put our trust in you, we are washed clean and we are invited into close proximity with the living God.
What a wonderful message. And yet, we, we have to admit, Lord, that there are times that we drift. There are times that we believe that we can somehow earn this right, or there are times that we even build up those walls ourselves. And so what we desperately need this morning again, Lord, is like the Ethiopian, that we would be clothed in humility, knowing that we can't do anything, that we actually need an outside source, and need an outside power. And Father, I pray that like him, we would be able to see the good news clearly so that every morning, even amidst the world that is really tough and a time of year that's just really tough and economically and politically and academically, it's just really tough. We might be people that we can say, well, we've got joy because I know that my sins are forgiven and that I'm free. We want to be a church that exudes this. We want to be a church that proclaims this. We want to be a church that experiences this. A church filled with joy of the gospel. Amen.